0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, I was going to title this message, Jonah the Bad Samaritan. Or Jonah, you give love a bad name. And truly he does. And I think as we look at Jonah, I want us to keep two parables in mind as kind of a template or a paradigm or a grid. And the first parable to keep in mind is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what you see with Jonah is he doesn't show any love, uh, particularly with the sailors in chapter 1. But again, in chapter 3 and 4, when the people are repenting, yet Jonah's rooting against them. But he doesn't do anything, as we're gonna look at. And the sailors really show us some amazing um, acts of love. And so keep that that paradigm, you know, where Jonah's the priest and the Levite is gonna walk by on the other side of the robe when there's a guy in need. And the sailors are the ones that, that show us what a good Samaritan looks like. The other parable is the parable of the prodigal son and the elder brother we see that Jonah is both in this story. And so in chapter one and two, we see Jonah is a prodigal and he's running away from God. And then in chapter two, Jonah's going to repent in a great time of need in the belly of the fish. He finally gets praying after he's been swallowed uh, by the fish. And then chapters three and four, we see that Jonah is the elder brother who preaches the message that God would have him preach, but all the while he hates the thought that anyone else is worthy of grace, and grace should only be for him because he alone deserves it. Well, most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah and its plot line, and what we have is Jonah panics in chapter one, he hits the panic button, he prays in chapter two, he preaches in chapter three, and in chapter four he has a pity party. And so, as I mentioned before, the service, if you only had the middle two chapters, you would think, wow, his great prayers, great preaching, and yet it's the chapters one and four that bring out all the problems. And it's really meant to show us some, some lessons as I get ready to read this that Jonah's actually the antagonist in the story. God's the protagonist. Everybody repents in the book of Jonah except for Jonah. Who fears God and loves their neighbor in Jonah? The sailors, all the people in Nineveh, even the king, but not Jonah. Who experiences the most amount of grace in the narrative? Who gives the least amount of grace in the narrative? Jonah. God gives Jonah a second chance, and God also gives Nineveh a second chance. And the irony is that Jonah doesn't want to give anybody a second chance. And so in many ways Jonah's really acting like the devil. He's against God, he's fighting God, and he wants the worst to happen to his enemies. Jonah hates what God loves and it makes him furious and a world where Jonah's enemies are able to repent and be forgiven as a world that Jonah refuses to live in. So Jonah is pitiful, prayerless, pompous, prejudiced, prideful, pouting, and pharisaical, just to name a few things. So look for those as we're looking, and it's meant to make us laugh, but then it's meant to make us cry because we laugh at Jonah until we realize there's a lot of us that's a lot like Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Then they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We'll stop there. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would work by the power of your Spirit, to apply this text to our hearts. Help us to see where we're like, Jonah. We pray that you'd make us more loving and gracious and compassionate. Lord, we pray that we would have your heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin with three imperatives arise, go, and call. Arise, up, Go to Nineveh and call out against it. Pretty simple stuff. Three imperatives. And Jonah does the first part right. He rose. But then it says that he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Not good. Why would Jonah do that? Well, Jonah was being called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is modern day Mosul, Iraq. This would be like you know, being a a good Jew and being sent right into the middle of Germany in the 1940s and and telling them to repent and he didn't want to do that and so the Ninevites they worshiped the goddess Ishtar and the Assyrian name for Ishtar was Nineveh which is transliterated in Hebrew as Nineveh these were pagan idol worshipers and they were mean They skinned people alive, they cut off the noses of their enemies, they'd hang folks in front of their cities to die, they had a horrible reputation, and certainly it appeared hopeless for the Ninevites to find favor with God. And so this makes us ask a few questions, because really what you're seeing in the book of Jonah, really almost clearer, I think, than any other book, is what does God think of those outside of his covenant? And what do you think when people say, how does God think about those that are not in the covenant? I hope you're thinking Jonah, because this is a great picture of God's heart for those outside his covenant. What does God think of the nations? His heart is big for them. And so God wants to teach us about what he thinks about the nations. And he's using Jonah as a way to comic book relief of like, not to be like Jonah. Now, Tim Keller in his book, he's got this new book called Prodigal Prophet. He says this. He says, Jonah fled because he didn't want to work for the good of the pagans, that he wanted to serve exclusively the interest of believers. But God shows him, shows him that the, he is the God of all people and Jonah needs to see himself as being part of the whole human community, not only members of a faith community. Some people only want to be a blessing to the church, and Jonah was fine being a blessing to his covenant people, but when God sent him outside of a covenant to another people, no, I don't love them. I only love the people inside, and this is a view to say, how do you love the people outside? And so Jonah doesn't, has a problem with that, and so Jonah tries to flee the presence of the Lord. Now... I asked this question earlier, can you ever flee the presence of the Lord? Well, if you remember the children's catechism, a couple of these questions, where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. Does God know all things? Yes, nothing can be hid from God. Can God do all things? Yes, God can do all his holy will. So we know this is going to be a futile attempt, kind of like the five-year-old who tells his mother that he's going to run away from home. And so the mother packs his lunch and gives it to him and watches him through the window because she knows he's never really going to get out of sight. Well, Jonah's not going to get out of the Lord's sight either. And we're told in Psalm 139 that where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even in Tarshish, you're there. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. And so Jonah is trying to flee, and it's like fleeing from air. You can't do it. Meanwhile, we're told of this very first command is to arise, right? And yet we have a play on words of Jonah keeps going down. Jonah goes down to Joppa, he goes down into the boat, down into the lower section of the boat, laid down to sleep and then later he's gonna go down into the water and when he goes down into the water he's gonna go down into the depths and he's gonna go down into the belly of the fish. Life is going down for Jonah because he doesn't honor the Lord who's told him to arise. And so it's this play on words here. Well, how's that working for Jonah as he's trying to escape from the Lord? Well, we're told in the scriptures, and this may be where some of you are this morning, trying to run away from God, keep him at arm's distance. The Bible tells us the way of the transgressor is hard, and many are the sorrows of the wicked. You see, This is a difficult life that Jonah now begins to live. And God is now moving heaven and earth to get his man. And he's going to bring a furious storm. And God often has to use some very odd circumstances to bring us to himself. And sometimes we don't get the message. I heard a funny story this week of Jack Miller, who is one of my favorite guys to read and, and there's a story that one time he was a chaplain in the middle of the night he was called to go to this room and the, at three o'clock in the morning this guy wants to speak to the chaplain and he happened to be on call and he got there and the guy was embarrassed and the reason the guy was embarrassed is because he said I called for you because the x-rays came back and they said that I was terminal but they realized that they mixed up the x-rays and that I'm really okay and so now I don't need to see you. <laughs> and so Jack Miller got there and it was, it was kind of like that's how we are, is that we really don't want to deal with God until we really know that something catastrophic has happened and you don't want to wait until then. So where are you at with the Lord this morning? Does he have to move heaven and earth to get to you? Well, Jonah's in a futile flight, and God's in a sovereign pursuit. And so the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The sailors are going to hurl the cargo overboard. Jonah says to hurl me into the sea, and the sailors finally hurled him into the sea. This was quite a storm. We're told it's in verse four that it's a great storm, a mighty tempest, and the ship is threatening to break up, okay? What would you be thinking or doing if you were on a boat like that? You see, you would be doing something, I would think. I mean, when I, when I get in a boat with somebody who knows what they're doing, as long as that person commanding the boat, as long as they're content, happy, everything looks good, I'm good. But if all of a sudden they're alarmed, then I'm really alarmed. If I fly with my brother and he's not alarmed and though we might be hitting some turbulence or whatever, if he's fine, I'm fine. But if he's alarmed, I'm alarmed. When the professionals here, these guys do this for a living, the captain of the ship makes a trip down the stairs to wake his buns up. I mean, everybody, the, the big guys, the professionals are scared to death. This is a big storm and it should remind us of another storm. That's exactly what happened to the disciples. They were schooled, they knew how to do this. And Jesus was asleep and they wake him up for different reasons. So they wake Jonah up, and Jonah is just completely complacent. The boat's heaving back and forth, the cargo's being dumped overboard, lots of commotion, lots of chaos, the captain has become religious, the seasoned sailors are desperate, Jonah knows exactly who's to blame, and yet he's he's asleep. How can Jonah asleep when everyone on board is in this together? We have one guy who isn't contributing anything to the shalom of the community. We have one guy. He's the one guy who should be bringing the light into the world, and he's the one guy that's bringing all the problems. All their precious cargo has been tossed overboard, their precious possessions, because of Jonah. It's all his fault. And yet he's over there taking a nap. Here we have a rebel and the captain of the ship is gonna pay him a visit. And he has a question for Jonah, and it's a surprising question, is it? What do you mean, you sleeper? What do you mean? And the Septuagint's even funnier. It's why snortest thou? Why are you snoring? So apparently he might have even been snoring a little bit here. This is totally inconsistent. We could say he has issues. Don't you care about us and yourself? How can you sleep when we're about to die? This is passivity, passivity and stupidity at its finest. There are times when you need to shine as a Christian. And in the storm is when Christians have to especially rise up, like Paul did in the shipwreck in Acts 27. But to be lazy, callous, pompous, lackadaisical, laissez-faire, just chilling out when the moment is calling for something totally different than that. And therefore, the captain is rebuking Jonah. Well, why was he sleeping? Tim Keller, in his book, Prodigal Prophets, says, first of all, this heathen captain is rebuking Jonah for being a man of God who has no idea about the problems of the people surrounding him too absorbed in his own worries. He's probably asleep because he's full of his own grief. He's full of his own self-doubts, full of his own guilt. And you know what happens when you're so wrapped up in your own problems, you have to go to sleep. He's being rebuked because he's so different, so distant from the problems of the people around him. He doesn't even know their predicament. It's like Jonah is clueless of his surroundings. He doesn't have the social awareness to realize what all the chaos and all the commotion and he's asleep. How about you this morning? Are there problems that you need to deal with in your own family, in your own workplace, and you're not dealing with it? You're just checking out. You see, Jonah's rebellion cost the crew their luggage, their precious possessions, and now their lives are hanging in the balance, and the sailors who as we as the story goes on we're going to see them get converted here they begin by crying out to their god and and you know their local tribal deities and they're doing everything in their power to save jonah's life they truly love their neighbor as themselves. i mean here's a guy who caused their possessions to be thrown overboard he doesn't own up until his sin until he's caught and the only way they catch him is when they cast the lots and they finally ask him to confess his sin after the lots has been cast. And, and one person's sin has brought trouble on the whole. What story of the Bible does that remind you of? Who, who did that? Brought complete problems and chaos on the whole nation of Israel, they lose a battle, and one guy has d- done some terrible, sinful thing and he doesn't repent until the lots come around and finally are cast on him. Who was that? Answer? Achan in Joshua 7. So this should be a terrible warning and a wake up to Jonah. Man, this is just, I'm just like Achan. And it didn't end well for Achan. And so Jonah is bringing all of these problems on, all the, the, on this boat and yet they're showing unbelievable kindness and mercy to him. And wouldn't it been nice just to see like, and Jonah in verse 13? Like when it says, you know, they, they rowed hard back to land. Does it say that, you know, Jonah got any blisters on his hands? His hands were soft. He was too good for that. Jonah doesn't do anything. Does he say that he does any of the heavy lifting and throwing the cargo overboard? Doesn't do anything. He's not doing anything. Is he praying? We don't see any words of prayer from the man of God, not until chapter two, and he's at the bottom of the sea in a fish. Now he's gonna start praying. Oh, now we're gonna pray. Well, the Lord heard that too. But he has the audacity to tell the people when they finally turn turn the screws on him, he says that I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Really? Really? You fear the Lord? I mean, it says in verse 5, the mariners were afraid. When he tells them he fears the Lord, the mariners are exceedingly afraid. Who really fears the Lord? And who ends the chapter with, they feared the Lord, they made vows, and they sacrificed to the Lord. They feared the Lord exceedingly. It's clear that it's meant to be show you that the sailors were the ones who feared the Lord. Not Jonah. They pray to the Lord out of fear because they're loving their neighbor and they don't want to throw Jonah overboard. And the chapter ends with, they feared a great fear, sacrificed sacrifices and vowed vows. It's a poetic play on words to show you how serious they were about their conversion. And so Jonah does everything wrong in chapter one and the irony is that God is showing us that sometimes the church needs to be rebuked by the world. And sometimes the church is the taillights when they should be the headlights, and sometimes the world is, is the headlights. And there's some things that we can learn as the image of God is, is stamped on everybody. And our neighbors have a lot to teach us and our co-workers. And we certainly see these sailors show us what it means to love your neighbor and not Jonah. And so, Jonah has this great theology He's a great preacher. He, he even gives a great, great uh, doctrinal statement here. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I mean, doesn't that just sound great? He sounds really, really good theological uh, expertise, and yet the sailors aren't impressed, are they? And the storm keeps getting worse, and they say, what should we do? Does Jonah say, well, let me go pray for a few minutes? Does Jonah say that? Jonah say, let me, let me talk to God. He says, no, just throw me overboard, throw me in. I mean, I'll just die a nationalist. I'm a prejudiced, I hate the Ninevites. I'd rather just die over here, just throw me overboard. The last thing I want to do is go to Nineveh. Last thing I want to do is let somebody else come in. He just, let me go. And yet they rode harder. They're still loving him. We're going to get this guy to shore. And yet the sea is growing more and more tempestuous. God's got a plan. He's going to reel in his man. God really loves Jonah. Isn't that amazing? God loves people like Jonah. Jonah is the one that's very pompous, very stubborn, very prideful. And all of these problems come from Jonah's pride. And yet God will not give up on him. And so eventually the sailors come to one conclusion and they they pray to the Lord now. Now they're praying to Yahweh. Don't hold this sin against us. But we see there's no other way. And even the prophet himself has said, throw me in, so we're gonna do it. But please don't hold us guilty of this. And they, they throw him over. And as soon as he hits, what happens? It's instantly calm. And so... What can we learn from from Jonah this morning? Well, I think a few lessons for us to think about, questions to ask ourselves. Is our private faith of any public good? Is our private faith of any public good? Because Jonah's was not. What do we learn here about common grace? Theology books don't talk a whole lot about this. Keller talks about it a little bit in his book, Prodigal Prophet, and he says this. In this episode, hope, justice, and integrity reside not with Jonah, but with the captain and the sailors. Though blameless victims, the sailors never cry injustice, finding themselves in a dangerous situation not of their own making. They seek to solve it for the good of all. Never do they wallow in self-pity, berate an angry God, condemn an arbitrary world, target the culprit Jonah for vengeance or promote violence as an answer. They don't do any of that. And certainly common grace was staring Jonah right in the face. Jonah himself was a recipient of what we would call special grace. He'd received the word of God. He'd received the revelation of his will, not available to human reason or wisdom. Jonah's a follower of, of Yahweh, the true God. And how is it possible then that the sailors are outshining Jonah Keller says this, common grace means that non-believers often act more righteously than believers despite their lack of faith, whereas believers filled with remaining sin often act far worse than their right belief in God would lead us to expect. All this means Christians should be humble and respectful towards those who do not share their faith. They should be appreciative of the work of all people, knowing that non-believers have many things to teach them, and Jonah is learning this the hard way. And so there's some lessons for us. And then finally, we want to think about how is Jonah like Jesus and unlike Jesus? You know, we're reminded in this story when we look at it that we say that's just like the disciples in the boat. They fear the Lord all the more after that storm stopped. You remember, they're, they're greatly afraid of the storm. But then when Jesus stood up and said, be still, and instantly that storm was calm, we're told that they were now exceedingly afraid. It's one thing to be scared of a storm, but now you're realizing that the God of the storm just stopped it instantly, and he's right next to me. That, that produced much more fear. And so here, we have to think about how are Jesus and, and, jo- and Jonah, the, Jesus being the true and better, well, we could say this. Jesus and Jonah both were prophets who called people to repent. Both Jesus and Jonah were used by God to save people from their sin. Both Jesus and Jonah were sacrificed for the sake of others. Both experienced a death, burial, and resurrection. I don't know if Jonah's actually died in the fish, but the idea is the sign of Jonah is just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish, so is Jesus, the son of man, three days in the heart of the earth. And so how are they different? Jonah didn't love people. He didn't love the people he was calling to repentance. Jesus loves the people that he's calling to repentance. Jesus always obeys his father, never runs away from what God had called him to do. Jonah deserved to be swallowed by the fish. Jesus didn't deserve to be swallowed up by death. Jesus is the greater than Jonah. Jonah is a picture of of Christ by contrast. Jonah is asleep in the boat during the storm. They're both asleep, but Jonah was spent escaping the will of the Lord. Jesus is tired from being spent doing the will of the Lord. In this, in this life, we are going to get tired. The question is, what are we getting tired of? And why are we getting tired? Jonah doesn't pray or do anything to show love for the sailors. Jesus does. He stills the storm because he's Lord over the storm. But then finally, in verse 12, Jonah says, I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. One man's sin has brought trouble on the whole and not until Jonah is cast out will the storm cease. Jesus, on the other hand, takes our evil upon himself, and he has cast out the righteous for the unrighteous so that the storm of God's wrath would cease and we would experience the perfect rest from the storm. Matthew Henry put it like this. The storm Jonah gave himself up to was of his own raising, but the storm which Christ gave him up, himself up to was the sto- still." was of our raising just as jonah delivered himself up to be cast into a raging sea that it might be calm so did our lord jesus which he died that we might live and so as we come to the table this morning let's remember that jesus christ gave himself for us to calm the storm the big storm not just the storms of this life but the storm of god's wrath And for the wrath to be uh, silenced and stilled, it was poured out on Jesus. And Jesus took that cup and he drank that bitter cup all the way so that the cup of blessing will come to us. He loves us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your pursuit of Jonah. Lord, we're reminded of your great, great love We thank you that you love your enemies and that we were those very enemies. Thank you that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We ask, Lord, that the gospel now would go down deeper into our hearts in all those dark places and pray that we bring forth good fruit. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.